0: Something that anyone who comes is going to be blessed by it. Luke chapter 22, let's begin reading at verse 63. Now the man who had held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy. Who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. And so we left off, you recall, if you were with us in our study last week, that Peter was out in the courtyard of Caiaphas, having denied the Lord three times by the second sound of the rooster. As that is taking place, Jesus is in the home of (laughs) Caiaphas, and... Luke here gives us very little detail of what has taken place inside the house of Caiaphas, except that he's being beaten. We know that when they get done beating Jesus, the doors of Caiaphas open up. They bring Jesus out. And as the sound of the rooster is going, Peter is cursing and swearing, denying the Lord for the third time that Jesus looked at Peter and Peter would leave the courtyard of Caiaphas that he's weeping. That is, he's convulsing. He's weeping deep within his soul as he left. He thought that he had severed his relationship with the Lord forever. But we do know that it's not the end of the story for Peter. And we know that that for the one that as I want to encourage you this morning, that perhaps you're here and you've been distant from the Lord, perhaps even denied that you've known him because here is Peter following the Lord from a distance. He's sitting at the enemy's fire, and fear begins to grip him, and his courage and his boldness begins to fall away, and, and he is weak, and he begins to say, as they said you know him, Jesus of Nazareth, I don't know him. And perhaps you've been through a similar circumstance. I've talked to people that have been through that and they're fearful and and their faith begins to falter and the boldness begins to leave because maybe they're at the enemy's fire in a place they shouldn't be. Uh, Maybe they uh, are ones that have been following the Lord from a distance, but whatever circumstance leads you to where you're failing the Lord, And I want you to know that the Lord's not done with you. And the Lord wasn't done with Peter. As most of you know that Peter, who was such an incredible leader in the early church, and when the Lord came and looked at Peter at that moment, I do not believe that it was a look of anger or disgust. I believe it was a look of love. And Peter, looking at his Lord, who was black and blue and bleeding and and spit running down his face, would see the love of the Lord for him, and it just, it got to him, and he weeps bitterly. But the Lord restores Peter, as most of you know, and used him big time. And the Lord desires in your time of failure, as you weep in your heart because of that, that he looks at you with love. And he looks at you with that love and that time, and he wants you to repent and return and be forgiven. And he wants to continue to use you. So as Luke here, he then switches scene, and he begins to put his attention on Jesus, who is on trial. Remember that the detachment of troops come there to the garden called Gethsemane. Led by a betrayer, Judas Iscariot, they bound Jesus up. And as we put the Gospels together, we know that Jesus would go through a series of six trials that leads him to being beaten and scourged and eventually crucified. He's going to be beaten on different occasions, even as we talk about today, as he's before the religious leaders. He's going to be beaten by the civil leaders, by the Romans, and he's going to be scourged and eventually crucified. Now, John's gospel tells us that Jesus... First, he went to the house of Annas, the high priest. And then, secondly, he comes here to the house of Caiaphas, where he's going to stand before the religious council in this illegal gathering of the Sanhedrin. You read about that most specifically in Matthew, Gospel chapter 26. So, as it tells us, that at the time that Peter's in the courtyard of Caiaphas, denying the Lord, here is the first trial before the religious council. So three religious trials that take place. First before Annas, the official high, not the official high priest, the power behind the high priestly office. Then this nighttime meeting, which was an illegal meeting before the religious council. And then in verse 66, we'll see the daytime trial before the religious council. And then when we move into chapter 23, there's going to be three trials before the civil leaders, first with Pontius Pilate, then he's going to send Jesus to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pontius Pilate. But while all of this is happening, keep in mind, this all happens in a matter of hours, starting late in the night as they arrest Jesus. They bound him up bring him back across the Kidron Valley to Annas and then to Caiaphas and, and then before the civil council. And we know that it's the Sanhedrin that usually that it is believed that they didn't meet until after the time of the first sacrifice in the morning. They're going to have Jesus on the cross by then. And it is interesting, as we consider the trials that were conducted, by the religious council and even as you look at it as he stands before the civil leaders because we're going to see that jesus before Pilate, is acquitted three times and even by herod but still he's unjustly scourged and crucified but we also see the illegality of the religious council there's one author that wrote that the sanhedrin council here the jewish supreme court made up of pharisees and sadducees overseeing by the official high priest, Caiaphas, that they broke nearly two dozen different laws, their own laws, when they brought Jesus in. For example, according to Jewish law, all criminal trials must begin and end in the daylight. So this second trial that the council has uh, is going to begin in verse 66, as it was day. That trial was necessary. Because they knew that this first one here that we just read about, that, that Jesus is being beaten at, that that's uh, illegal to have that. It's taking place in the middle of the night. Uh, according to Jewish law, all criminal trials must begin and end in the daylight. Secondly, according to Jewish law, only decisions made in the official meeting place was valid. So that trial at night at Kaipa's house was illegal because it was taking place at his house, and they pronounced him guilty, which was illegal. And according to Jewish law, criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. So there's many other laws and rules and regulations that I could uh, give to you that they end up breaking and violating when they're trying Jesus. Now remember earlier in the chapter when they arrested Jesus in the garden that he said to them, this is your hour. Because some of the chief priests and the scribes and some of the council members came with the detachment of troops. And Jesus said to them, this is your hour, the power of darkness. And it is a dark hour indeed in what has taken place here. So as we look again at John's gospel making mentioning of that, that the first trial was at The house of Annas. Now, Annas is the father in law of Caiaphas, and sometimes people get confused. Is Annas the high priest, or is Caiaphas the high priest? Are there two high priests? Here's the thing historically that we need to keep in mind that Caiaphas is the father in law. Of Annas and Caiaphas was the official high priest that year according to John chapter 18 verse 13 and in John he writes that that as we see that Jesus is bound up he would first then go to Annas but what is interesting when they bound Jesus up that there's one commentator that would say and comment on that that imagine this that the Creator is being bound by the creation And the omnipotent one being bound by ropes and samson was able to break those ropes that bound him how much more was the son of god able to break uh, any ropes that had him bound and you know the saying that really it wasn't the ropes that kept him bound it wasn't the nails that kept him up on that cross it was his love for you for you specifically and they went to anna's house first of all because as we've talked about in our previous studies that anna's Being the power behind the high priestly office. You say, how did that happen? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, as you look at the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, that the high priest was from the tribe of Levi, that he was a direct descendant of Aaron, and as he served as high priest, he would serve as high priest for life. He was really seen as the leader of the nation spiritually. Now, in Jesus' day, of course, Rome had uh, taken over Israel, was in power the known world, and they wanted to make sure that in Judea and in Jerusalem that the high priest didn't have that much power. In other words, they wanted to limit his power. So Rome comes along and says, listen, we're going to control who the high priest is. We don't care about the qualifications of a high priest, if he's from the direct line of Aaron or not. We don't care if he is... A man that fears God. We don't care if he has godly integrity or character. We want to dictate who the high priest is. So they wanted somebody who was going to work with the Roman officials, appease them. And we've talked about that the Sanhedrin council be made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that kept the most minute details of the law. And then the Sadducees, uh, most of the chief priests were Sadducees. They were more the political leaders of the land. They were ones that they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in coming Messiah. They dismissed most of the Old Testament. They only adhered to the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and the Sadducees didn't believe in much of anything. But they would work with Rome and there were fewer Sadducees and they were ones that were generally wealthy. And Annas was very wealthy in his day. Matter of fact, he was the official high priest 20 years before this time that we're reading about in Luke chapter 22. So here comes Rome. They're ruling over the land. We're going to dictate who's going to be the high priest and we're going to give it to somebody that will work with us. And while we're at it, we might as well give it to the highest bidder make some money out of it. So Annas, his family, for years and years, historically, were overseeing the selling of the sacrifices at Passover and also the exchange of money. You see, what happened during this time, the Second Temple period, was somebody came up with a good idea. With the Jews, after the captivity of of the Babylonian captivity, the Jews were spread out throughout the known world at this time. And so you had Jews that were living in the area of Persia and also of Babylon, in that area of Asia Minor, in northern Africa. For somebody to come and celebrate the Passover, First of all, they would spend life savings doing that. Travel was very difficult. It was very slow. But even if you're coming from, you know, not far from Jerusalem, to bring a sacrifice, an animal, wasn't very practical. So someone initially, the priest said, Why don't we do this? Why don't we have some pre approved, you know, lambs and doves that uh, are uh, available for people when the worshiper comes? and the pilgrim comes, that they're able to buy that pre-approved, already inspected animal, and it was a good idea. But what happened over time, it became corrupt. And Annas and his family was overseeing the selling of the sheep and the doves and the exchange of money. Because if you came from Rome, and you had Roman coinage with the emperor's image on it, remember Jesus said, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God. You see, the priests would not accept that money; it's blasphemy and no good. So you had to exchange it. That's why they had the money exchangers. If you came from Ethiopia, from you had coinage coinage that was from you know that had minted on it the image of Candace, then you had to exchange that. So here is Annas and his family and the chief priests; they're making a killing off of the people that they're, they're selling the animal sacrifices at a high price. price They, they exchange the money. They, they were making a lot of money, ripping the people off is what they were doing. And Annas, who was very rich, when Rome said every few years that we're going to get a new high priest, he was able to pay off the Romans to keep the priesthood, the high priest's office in his family. Five of his sons historically became the official high priest's Caiaphas, his son in law, is the high priest this year. After Caiaphas, we're going to see that Annas, his uh, grandson, becomes the high priest. So, all this is going on. So, Annas really the power and influence of the high priest's office. And what did Jesus do a few days before he stands before Annas? You know what he did. He comes into the temple and he cleansed the temple. He drove out those who were selling the sacrifices and overturned the money changers' tables. And and he did that not only once, he did it twice in his ministry. You got to remember that in the Gospels, there was two cleansings of the temple. The first time in John chapter 2 that Jesus came In his early ministry, he comes to Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, and he rebuked the religious leaders publicly. He said to them that you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. And he said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. We know that this cleansing of the temple that the synoptic gospels record right a few days before this, that Jesus, as he rebuked the religious leaders, again, driving out uh, the sacrifices and those who uh, exchanged money, overturned the money changers' tables, and he would rebuke the religious leaders, and he would say to them at that time that you made my Father's house, which is a house of prayer for all the nations, into a den of thieves. So the religious leaders, particularly the chief priests, they are very angry and furious with Jesus but especially Annas. So he wants to see Jesus first. Annas asked Jesus about his doctrine and his disciples. And Jesus answering said, I've spoken openly and in secret I have said nothing. And at that time, the, one of the servants or one of the officers of the high priest struck Jesus as John's gospel records and says, do you, you know, answer the high priest that way? And that word for struck is a word that refers to 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 flay off the skin. It wasn't just a slap. It was a punch. It was a hard blow that would do physical damage. And and we know that, that as it tells us that it was the servant or the official of the high priest, the name isn't given, but just think a little bit. Because it has been suggested, and it's only that a suggestion that perhaps That the official or the servant of the high priest that hit Jesus as he now begins to undertake the sufferings of the cross, as he's going to be beaten even further, much worse, as he is punched by that official, the high priest, some have suggested it was it Malchus. Remember Malchus in the garden? He's up front there. And he's going to take Jesus away bound up and Peter swings the sword and gets his ear and Jesus healed his ear. It's kind of interesting to ponder that and think about that, that could it be perhaps if it was him, the one that received healing from Jesus, is the one now that is punching Jesus. But we do know this, that as you search the scriptures, that it tells us that some of the Pharisees became believers after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not recorded that any of the Sadducees became believers because the Sadducees, again, didn't believe in the resurrection. But some of the Pharisees did. And in the early church, the Pharisees were there at the Jerusalem council. You might remember that chapter, Acts chapter 15, that here comes... Paul and Barnabas and and the boys from Antioch up north, they come to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James and the guys there, and they're trying to uh, come up with a resolution uh, to, to decide what do we tell these Gentile believers? Do they have to be circumcised or not? And it was a sect of the Pharisees that were there that believed at that Jerusalem council. And I just wonder if any of those Pharisees in the early church, that they are here beating on Jesus, spitting in his face, if later on, to know that I hit my Lord, and I hurt my Lord, and such forgiveness, because Jesus would say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But in a sense, as we (coughs) apply it to us here this morning, That I know for me and my sin, I've hurt him. And my rebellion and my coming against the Lord before I became a believer and my failure to the Lord, such forgiveness and grace that he's extended to us. Amen? And so here are those Pharisees. It's, It's interesting to think. It's incredible what's going on. So here's Annas. Caiaphas, both called the high priest. Anna's the power behind the high priestly office and couldn't wait to get his hands on Jesus. Then after Anna sees Jesus and he's punched, then he's taken, as Luke gives us, very little detail of the trial, his second trial. And this one's before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, led by Caiaphas, the official high priest. And keep in mind that if I already have mentioned that at this gathering of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night was illegal. And you read more specifically what took place in this second trial as you again, Matthew chapter 26, you might write it down in your notes, and verses 57 through 68 tells us that, that here are the religious leaders, they sought false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death they would bring in a couple of false witnesses who came forward and said he claimed to destroy the temple and in three days, you know, he'll build it. And again, John chapter two, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. I picture Jesus saying, destroy this temple. He's talking of his resurrection. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Of course, they had no idea what he was talking about. So Caiaphas, at that second trial, here in the middle of the night, tells us, you know, if you're the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus said to him, it is as you said, and I say to you hereafter, that you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And at that point, Caiaphas tears his robe, and he cries out, he's spoken blasphemy. We have no further need of witnesses. You've heard the blasphemy. And at that moment, they said, he is deserving of death. And this is where Luke now picks it up that we just read that they blindfolded him Matthew says they spit in his face they beat him they're mocking him prophesy who hit you unimaginable what is taking place here and the thing about when you blind somebody and you're beating them that would do some real damage because if you could see perhaps the blow coming you can soften the blow a little bit if somebody's hitting you but if you're blindfolded you don't see it coming and the damage that it would do is kind of like when you go home, some of you are going to watch some football. When a quarterback, you know, the defender comes in and hits him. if he can see it coming, he can kind of roll with it. It's when he's blindsided. That's where a lot of guys can get hurt. And Jesus here is blindsided. They're, they're pushing him around, spitting in his face, mocking him, beating him. We know that in this council there were two men who the next day will take the body of Jesus down from the cross and prepare him for burial. One of those, Joseph of Arimathea. We were told by John's gospel that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. He would go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Luke tells us that he was a council member and did not consent to their decision indeed at this time. And I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder how he became a disciple. He's listening to Jesus teach. He's watching Jesus. He's heard of the miracles, perhaps even seen some of the miracles that he performed. Jesus would say to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they that speak of me. And Joseph of Arimathea becomes a believer. The other one that was there is Nicodemus. You know his story. He comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says that we know that you come from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus called Nicodemus the master teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was one that dedicated his life to teaching the most minute details of the law, all about the sacrifices. And Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says, That if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And it floored Nicodemus. And he's struggling with this. Why do you mean be born again? And Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. Nicodemus knew what he was talking about. He's referring to the book of Numbers. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I just wonder what Joseph and Nicodemus are thinking as all of this is taking place, the sufferings of Jesus being beaten and being scourged and, and being lifted up on that cross, that they're wondering the scriptures are being fulfilled right before our eyes of David, who wrote a 1,000 years before this in Psalm 22, that they pierced my hands and my feet. And as he speaks about Jesus' death on the cross, they must be thinking about Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, that I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah goes on to write in chapter 52, so his vintage, that is, the suffering Messiah, his appearance was marred more than any other man, in his form more than the sons of men. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him surely. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. It was written out so clearly. And as Jesus is going through the sufferings on the cross and being lifted up on the cross, these guys, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, seeing the scriptures being filled, Fulfilled right before them of the suffering Messiah. This Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one, the one who works such miracles. Amazing what's taken place. And those religious leaders. That were opposed to Jesus, all of their anger and hatred and wrath, all of a sudden comes out, and they're mocking him and spitting on him and beating him. Prophesy, who's the one that struck you? And that anger towards him would continue even as they hand him over to Pilate, as they're there vehemently accusing him before Pilate and before Herod, and even as we know that religious leaders went about the crowd, converts convincing the people to crucify Jesus and to release Barabbas. And even as Jesus was on the cross, they sneered at him and mocked him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ. So now we come to his third trial. The second trial before the Sanhedrin is verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him and to their council, saying. So as we, we read this, it is day. But I want to pass something by you. This gathering of the elders and scribes and the whole council, the official daylight trial, again, that they needed to do this in order to justify their actions, you know, as they hold a meeting during uh, as soon as it was day. But before that trial, what they did in the middle of the night was illegal. And in between the second trial of Jesus, when he faced the Sanhedrin and they beat him, and this third trial, that as soon as it is day, it is believed that they bound Jesus up. He comes out of Caiaphas' house, right? He's beaten. He looks at Peter. Peter's swearing and cursing, I don't know the man. And they lead Jesus, it is believed, to a holding cell because here we're going to see that early in the morning they quickly condemn him and then they're going to bring him before Pilate early in the morning. But as I told you last week that there's a place in Jerusalem that is, is believe, where Caipus house was and they've excavated that area. They've excavated where the courtyard was and the steps that lead up to the courtyard, the original stones. And it's very fascinating. It's a quiet place because a lot of groups don't go there. I love going there. And sitting on those steps and thinking about what took place this night as Peter's there in the courtyard and he's denying the Lord and and the original road pathway that comes up to Caiaphas' house, the original stones they've excavated where Jesus would have walked. And as he's there before the Sanhedrin and he's being beaten, they bound him up. The doors of Caiaphas open up. They put Jesus... I believe in that holding cell because as they excavated underneath Caipas' house, there's a prison cell there. There's a holding cell. There's, there's a pit that's there. And they know that it was a place where they kept prisoners because of the markings on the wall of the chains and ropes that they would drop and lower the prisoners in. And that's where Jesus would be for an hour, two hours Before he's brought here in verse 66, when it is daytime, they would pull him out of that pit and there would be the official meeting of the religious council condemning him once again. But I want you to mark down Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a fascinating psalm. And I'm just going to read some of it to you. But there are scholars that believe that perhaps Psalm 88 is messianic. In other words, that Psalm 88, and Psalm 88 is a real heavy psalm. It's very somber. It's the psalmist written by He-Man, the Ezra-Height. It starts out as a bummer and it ends as a bummer. It really does. But there are scholars that believe that perhaps Psalm 88 is a fulfillment of that time that Jesus was in that pit in that dark place very fascinating to look at it let me read some of it to you that for my soul is full of troubles in verse 3 and my life draws near to the grave i am counted as those who go down to the pit i'm like a man who has no strength adrift among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me, that is the disciples running away. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eyes waste away because of affliction, being beaten by the religious council. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in the place? of destruction shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness but to you I have cried out O Lord and in the morning my prayer comes before you and you can read the rest of the psalm but there are those who believe that this is what Jesus was feeling and experiencing as he's in that pit is it messianic I don't know for sure but I do know this for sure that you that may be here this morning and you feel like that you're in a pit, that you're in a very dark place, you feel alone, and you feel like there's no way out, I want you to know this, that Jesus can relate to your situation, that he knows how you feel because he was in that place. He was in that place of darkness and affliction. He was in that solitary place, bound up, And he went there for you because he loves you. To give you hope because of his love for you specifically, individually. And he's the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he wants you to know that he hears you and he sees you. And no one else may know how you are hurting in your heart, but he does. And he was lowered down into that pit and in the darkness of his life at this time, on this night. But it would be three days later that he came forth from that tomb and lightened life on the first day of the week. And you and I, we have hope because he is our hope. And as you look to him, and as you call out to him, he will somehow, in some way, bring life and light into your life and your circumstance. It was the psalmist David that would write in Psalm 40, that when he was going through a very difficult time, that the Lord, he has brought me out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he has established my steps, you keep praying to him, you keep looking to him, and you will be established in him. And you're going to see his faithfulness being worked out in your life. Well, this third trial, let's look at it very quickly, and then we're going to wrap things up. As we read in, in verse 67, they asked them if you're the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need for we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So they knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he ascribes to himself the title of son of man. Again, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, Daniel writes that I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And Jesus ascribes to himself the title of Son of Man some 86 times in the gospel. And he puts these guys on notice that you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God. Nicodemus is there. Joseph of Arimathea is there. I wonder if there was another young Pharisee that was there. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. He was excelling in Judaism more than his contemporaries, we know from the scriptures. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And in Acts chapter 7, shortly after this, a few years into the early church, that Stephen, that deacon, the first martyr of the church, he's given his testimony before this council. And we know that Saul of Tarsus was there because he gave the consent to stone Stephen to death. He was actually holding the coats of the guys who were throwing the rocks, and as They are stoning Stephen. It says that Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And if it is Saul that was there and was here on this night, he's probably thinking back, that's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. Thereafter the Son of Man will be sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Now Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand. Why is he standing? I think to receive Stephen. And those of you who are in Christ, the day is going to come where the Lord's going to stand and receive you to himself because he is truly the Son of God who conquered sin and death. And I think that's why that chapter 8 of Acts, you see that, that is Saul, that he, he was like a, a wild animal, crazed, persecuting the church. He caused havoc on the church. That word has the meaning of he was like a, a shark out for blood. And he persecutes the church. And then in chapter 9, as he meets the Lord on the road, that the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It must be hard to kick against the goats. You know you've been convicted that I am real and the Son of Man is at the right hand of God the Father. There may be some of you that are here that you're kicking against the goad. That you know deep down inside that Jesus is Lord. That he is the Son of God. And you've been bucking that. You've been resisting that. And what my prayer is this that you would submit to it. Jesus came because he loves you, and wants to save you, and he has a wonderful plan for you in your life. And he desires for you to experience true joy and peace, forgiveness, and to come into right relationship with the Father and to have a hope of eternal life. Don't resist that. Listen, if you're here and you're not right with God, Call upon his name. Jesus went to the cross for you. And if there's anything that you get from today's lesson, is this, that he loves you so much that he went to that cross that you may be forgiven. I don't care what you've done. Forgiveness is available. And to come into a personal relationship with him, a call out to him for forgiveness, we want to give you that opportunity. Don't kick against the goats. He is real. He's speaking to your heart right now. Give your life to him. So, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for, uh, Lord, this morning. This story that I think most of us are familiar with, the trials of Jesus, but we know that he is at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man, that rose from the grave, And so, Father, what I pray is if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, coming to church won't save you, hearing a Bible study won't save you, trying to be sincere or a good person it's not going to save you. It is faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross because he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I paid the price for sinful humanity. And then he rose from the grave. You see, all other religious leaders are in the grave. There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem and he proved that he's the son of God who rose from the grave and conquered sin and death and he loves you and he's calling on you to come to him, to whoever believe, confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. The invitation is given to you right now. Will you do that? You can pray right where you're at in your heart. Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for me. That you rose again in your life speaking to me. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior and sit upon the throne of my life. Forgive me of my sins. And I believe in you and I come to you and ask that I would know you and help me to walk with you and to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for this new beginning to be born again by the Spirit of God. And I receive your grace and your love right now. In Jesus' name. And listen, just while we got a minute, while I can see you here in this sanctuary, I know there's others in the coffee shop and listening on live stream, listening later on the radio. But if you're here, you've made a decision for Christ, will you just put your hand up? I want to pray for you. Anybody at all at this time at this service? And I'm not going to prolong it, but we give this opportunity at our services. Anybody at all at this time? Okay. Father, there may be those that I don't know, and I know there have been those this morning that have made decisions for Christ. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you for... Lord, as we go through the pages of Scripture, that this, again, account of Jesus suffering for us would really impact us, especially as we enter into the holiday season, knowing as we talk about peace and goodwill and thanksgiving, that we as Christians can truly have that because we belong to you and because Jesus was born for a purpose, to come and die for us. Lord, I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. Bless our week. Help us to be a light to others. And, Lord, to follow closely with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good. Would you please stand?